passages in the scripture today. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 14, 21, comes out of a famous discourse that Paul has on the church. And then also go to Romans chapter 13, two verses out of there, verses 7 and 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 14 and 21, and Romans chapter 13, verses 7 and 8. Now, before I read the passage, let, let me give this a little bit of orientation. It's been a, we've been in this series called True Freedom, and this is part 6 out of that series. And it's been a little bit of a strange series, even for me this month. Uh, I was gone to Bishop for one week, and then um, last week we had the all-church Thanksgiving service, so uh, we, we had an interruption there in the series, and so let me, let me give you this, and then you have, of course we have your college students who haven't even been a part of our series, so let's, let, let me see if I can get us a little bit up to speed and review. Part one was called Beyond Religion and Selfish License, and the whole point of this series is that what we tend to do is we tend to fall into imbalances, one side or the other, and fall off one end of the cliff or the other, and, it's, and the first one was that we tend to want to make up... Who in trying to be a good person on the basis of religion, and then sometimes when we reject that, we turn to, you know, I don't need anybody, I can live however I want to live, and I call that selfish license. That was sermon number one. Message number two is that real freedom is something that flows out of our hearts. It's not just something of as a constraint on the outside, and we apply that issue of how we may have freedom, not just on the basis of some legalism or however we want, to the issue of money. And I called that slavery and how we spend and save money. That was part two. Part three, we talked about the issue of how we are often driven by status and achievement. And I called that freedom from status and achievement. And we had a really, we had a very penetrating um, message from Jesus about how we seek to have certain uh, seats at the table at a dinner, at a dinner party. I hope, um, I hope that many of you remember that particular message. That was particularly convicting for me. Message number four was called Relativism, Duty, and Real Freedom. And especially in Asian circles, duty is a very big thing. In kind of the American world, the American culture, we've, we really cast duty off. And in Asian circles, really it's duty that decides and frames how you're going to become a good person but in American cultures, we cast duties off and we want to say that we're going to be self-fulfilled and then have freedom this way. And we talked about how free, a real freedom is, is a different path than that. And two weeks ago, I had a message called Real Freedom and the Delusion of Control. And there we talked about how much are you trying to control your life and live according to a life script. That was two weeks ago. And today we're going to talk about the issue of how we look at people. How do you look at people in your life? How do you approach relationships in your life? Do you fall into a problem of neediness? Or do you fall into a, an issue of saying you don't need anybody and you, you tend toward a certain kind of self-sufficient loneliness? That is a, the question I want to raise for you today. So let me, let's go to today's passages. First Corinthians 12, 
verse 14. This is the Word of God. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as He chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. And here's the verse I would like us to focus on, verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Let's go to Romans chapter 13. Romans 13, verses 7 and 8. Here's what it says. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Yet, owe no one anything. Isn't that funny? Pay to everyone something that you owe. But then he turns around and he says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Let me pray for this message about neediness and about self-sufficiency. Lord, this is not an easy subject, and I know that, um, that you know, this will be hard to hear for certain people, and I pray that uh, you would use my lips and you would use this message to bless, to heal, to encourage and to fill us where we lack. I pray that you would make us whole people, free inside of us, full of security, so be free to give ourselves to others in deep, in deep and true, and in, in, in really relationships filled with your purpose and your ends and your, your means, Lord. Your means and your ends to be filled with your love. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In order to start this message, let me read a quote. This comes from C.S. Lewis. This is actually not one of the more famous quotes out of the book, but I think it's very, very insightful. It comes from his very famous book, Four Loves. So if you're not familiar with Lewis, C.S. Lewis, you know, everybody's all famous for the Narnia series. You know, that's one of the movies that are out nowadays. But he wrote a, a really insightful book called Four Loves. And he talks about, you know, different types, different different uh, expressions of love in that book. But um, here's something that he says that I think that I would like to bring to your attention. He says this. Every human love at its height. Notice what he says, at its height. Every human love at its height has a tendency to claim for itself a divine authority. That's what he says there. Every human love at its height has a tendency to claim for itself divine authority. Its voice tends to sound as if it were the will of God Himself. Family affection, so family love may actually start to do this, may do the same. And so in a different way, may friendship. It must be noticed that the natural loves 
make this blasphemous claim, not when they are in their worst, but when they are in their best natural condition. You understand what he's saying there? He's saying, you know, we all long for a certain kind of human love. We all want love to come into our life. But what he's saying is that when there's love, and not when it's bad, but when it's really good, and when it's actually at its best, there's a danger. When human love is at its best, there's a voice within this human love, and it's trying to make a claim that it has its ultimate claim on you like it is God. Like it has a God's authority in your life. And so, that's, that's what this is. And so, and then he gives you an example. He says, family love. Family love might do this. Families, there's a love from your family, and it will try to claim an ultimate, ultimate authority in your life. Then there may be, some of you, I know you, you very much care about your friends. You're, you turn to your love from your friends, and this is some of the deepest and most beautiful thing that you have in your life. And yet, your friend, the love from your friend, start to claim a certain ultimacy. And then, of course, there's also, you know, the love from your spouse or a love from your lover, you know, your, your boyfriend or girlfriend, your significant other, as we like to say today, that, that, that very terrible phrase, okay? <laughs> significant other, all right? Um, but he says it has this way of wanting to make a claim on you which almost seems as if it is ultimate, like it is from God. Now, this is my way of intro into this into this message I want to talk about today. If we go into today's passage, I gave you two passages which say two things which seem to be opposite of each other. And I think within these two points, there's a secret. There's a secret to having a certain understanding of the way we look at people. Because the problem that I want to talk about today is, is this. If you look at the 1 Corinthians 12 passage, he tells you something very deep about the human state. And really, he's talking about, he uses this picture of a body. And what he's talking about, actually, it's a very famous discourse about the church. And, you know, the church is like a body, and some are eyes, and some are hands, or some are feet. And they are absolutely connected to each other. Now, now I know that sometimes you, many of you think of the church as, my, as primarily a religious institution, but really, that's not the way Paul thinks about the church at all. For in the Bible... The church is the deepest form of community that there is. It is the ultimate. Do you understand that not cities or clubs, but actually the church is the ultimate and final community that there is. And that's the way Paul describes it. And the, and the connections between human beings in the church. So if you're saved, the deepest form of community will be the church. The church will last forever. <laughs> and... The way Paul says, the way you're so connected to each other is like there's an eye and there's a foot and there's a hand, and they are absolutely connected to each other. And if you look at a, if you look at an eye, if you look at a hand, I mean, they look nothing like each other. A hand and an eye, they look like nothing like each other, and they don't look like they're they're connected. But Paul says, because they are part of a body, that they are deeply connected to each other in who they are. And this is a real serious blindness, I think, that we have in our culture, that that. We don't understand that you're not just a pure individual, distinct and separated from other people, but that if you really want to find fulfillment in who you are, the eye is just nothing by itself. I mean, what the heck is an eye without a head, without his hands, without a neck and the body? An eye is just nothing by itself. But if you want to find true and deep fulfillment in who you are, you need to be connected to other people. 
And so what he says is he gets to this verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. And yet, in our society, that is precisely the way we're trying to live. We are trying to live as if we don't need other people. So often we live in this way that people that we don't depend on them, that we're not intrinsically connected to them, we're trying to live. You may not exactly say this out loud. Maybe some of you do. But you're trying to live in such a way that you don't have to depend on anybody else, that you're not really deeply connected to anybody else. You, you don't maybe say it exactly out loud, but you do say to other people, I don't really need you. That's false. You do. Right? Now, if you go to the Romans chapter 13, let me go to Romans 13. Paul says something else here. What he says is seems to be almost exactly the opposite of what he says in 1 Corinthians 12. He says here, you know, he, and it's actually a uh, discourse here. He's talking about our relationship to the authorities and the governing structures. It's a, it's a remarkable thing he's saying here. He's saying you should submit to the oppressive Roman government. I mean, some of the Christians are, are, are Jewish. Some of them are Gentiles. And he says you should pay taxes if you owe them. You should, you should, uh, you should uh, pay revenue to whom you owe revenue. But then it gets interesting. He says you owe respect. Give respect. You owe honor. Give honor. But then he turns and he says something very funny, which is, owe no one anything except love. That's a funny way of putting it. He's saying that you, we know we always owe people stuff. So in one sense, we are dependent on other people and we are connected to other people and we're so connected, you owe them things. But then he says, he makes you a command, don't owe anybody anything except to love them. And here he seems to be saying something about not actually depending on other people, but I don't think that's really true. Here within these two seemingly kind of opposite pictures is, I want you to show there's a secret there's a secret about how we relate to other people. Right? There's, which, which I would say is biblical freedom. It's the true freedom that human beings all are supposed to have. Because you see, biblical freedom is not only supposed to be something... You see, Christians have it because you have this from God. But ultimately, it was God's intent. Because everybody as a human being was ultimately supposed to be under God, and now we call them Christians. But really, this form of freedom is a, is a, it's a healthy vision of humanity, of how we relate to relationships and to people. Now, what we have in our society, we tend to fall into two, two poles. We all know that we are connected to other people and we need them. And then what we do is we overneed them. There are certain people, just as Lewis says, when there's a human love and it's very high and it's very good, it tends to become so great that it begins to eclipse or take the place of God in our life. And, and that's a, there's a danger in that. And so then people, people become the ultimate thing in our life. And then we become, and then we start clamoring for a certain kind of love to come into us. And you know, it's interesting. Our society is so, is so much on the other end of this. You know, in so many other societies, Everybody understands you're so deeply connected into others. And I think Asian cultures, we, they understand this. We don't tend to think of ourselves primarily. Asian cultures don't tend to think of people as, primarily as individuals, but someone deeply interconnected to others and really needing them. Right? But in the American culture, we don't like this. Okay? 
What we, we, we want to do is we want to say, I don't owe anybody anything. I owe nobody anything. And we think that's the right way of doing things. And so we want to say is, what we really value is self-sufficiency. I'm sufficient. And we want to say, I don't depend on anybody. And yet, there's a, the, the, when both of these things go too far, I'd say both of these things are the flip sides of the problem of not knowing how to need others. On the, on the one hand, in our American culture, we so care about self-sufficiency, we actually have a word for people that we think, that we think go too far and depending on others. You know what we call them? We call them needy. If you're a needy person, you know what that is? That's an insult, actually. If you say, oh, that person's needy, that's not a good thing to be said about a person, right? I mean, who here wants to be called, oh, I'm a needy person? That's I mean, there, there's something so, like, where there's so kind of hungering in our emotions that we have to, we, we're very needy of somebody else to affirm us and to love us. And with those, those people are called clingy. Those people are, are too dependent. And... That's, that's a picture of a kind of person that we don't want to be in our society. But we, we all know, in one sense, that we all know people like that, don't we? But the flip problem side, and I think the, the opposite side problem is the other way, is that we, don't, we won't have anybody into our life. Because we, want, we will say, oh, we don't need to depend on anybody. And then we go, and then what we're deep down is we're lonely. <laughs> and I think in America... This is probably, maybe, the loneliest society that's ever been on this planet. Isn't that interesting? This is the richest society. This is perhaps the most multi-ethnic society. I don't know, maybe Brazil could compete with us on the multi-ethnic side. There's so much that we have here, and yet this is a country of 300 million people, of very lonely souls, because we want to be, say, hey, we don't need anybody. Now let me give you some examples of the way I think this that this looks like. Just some examples, okay, of of our problem with this, of how we go to people. Um, you know, uh, the first one is we have a, you know, how did you choose your profession, or how did you choose your major? When you think about it, what you do for a living, and some of you guys are in college, so you guys aren't quite there yet, okay. But those of you guys, you guys are trying to choose a major, right? You're trying to choose what you're going to study, and you have all these choices before you. And yet, when, especially in, in, in our circles, especially like in a church like this, in Asian circles, how often do you meet someone who says, I studied uh, poetry? Ah, you meet someone, you're like, if you ever, you go to, you go to college, or if you ever, or maybe out of college, you're like, what'd you study? Poetry. Or how about, if, did you ever meet somebody who studied comparative literature? In my whole life, I met one person who has studied comparative literature, and I assure you that person was not Asian. <laughs> okay? Do you guys even know what comparative literature is? It's to actually learn another language and to get good enough at that other language that you could read their literature, you could read their poetry, you could read their stories. And that is a remarkable thing. That if you could understand, let's say we'll just take Spanish for example, if you can understand the Spanish mind so deeply you could read their stories and get deep into the Spanish heart if you could read their stories. And then to read all the English speakers' stories and then to see kind of like what makes those two different hearts of those two different cultures tick. That's what comparative literature is. And when you think about it, that's a very beautiful and remarkable pursuit, is it not? Right? To get so deep into the heart 
of a people that you could really deeply understand their stories, right? But, right, who studies that? <laughs> and why don't you study that? And I'm talking to young people today, and some of you guys are, you know, obviously working, we're not all young here. Why do we tend to all go into business, right? Or, or, uh, or go into medicine, you know, or I meet people, young people today, and they say they study history. I'm like, oh, do you study history because you love history? No, no, actually, I plan to go to law school. To me, history is like code word among in Asian circles for pre-law, right? Why is that these days? And part of it is certainly you want to make a certain kind of money, right? But isn't it also because somewhere along the line you had parents? And here we go. Just like Lewis said, family affections. You had parents who had put a certain affection on you. And if you had picked a certain trajectory of career or job or something, maybe they wouldn't, have, they wouldn't put their affections on you. And they wouldn't put their uh, approval upon you. And part of why you chose a certain route was that there's a certain amount of money and there's a certain amount of approval that you want from other people. And we even have a word for this. And we call those people pleasers. And that too, just like the word needy, that's not a good thing you want to be called. Oh, you're a people pleaser, right? That means you're enslaved to other people and you just care about other people's opinions. But if we're really honest, maybe not all of us, many of us, you know, we closed off options to our future and it came down in certain kinds of ways. And now you guys are very young, like especially you college guys. But as some of us have gotten older, you know, and we've been in our careers for a while, sometimes we don't always necessarily like it. Maybe if, you're, if you really love what you do for a living, you're really blessed. But there are many people who, who don't, and they have re- regrets. You know, they're 35 or 45 or 50, and they have regrets. But when you think about it, how did we end up there? And part of it was, well, we were ple- people pleasers, probably to our parents, or if not to your parents, maybe someone else that you thought was so important to have their approval in your life. Here you go, neediness, people pleasing, right? Give you another example. This is a little bit harder example. It's a little bit more painful. You all know the people. And you've met people like this. And maybe you're one of them. You're the one, you're the one who just got to have a boyfriend. Or you got to have a girlfriend. Remember, you know those people? Right? Uh, you know, uh, just, just, talk, just talking a little personal. I mean, of course, we, nobody would ever admit this, right? That you just have to be... And, 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 it's, and uh, the ones that are more willing to admit it often tend to be women, or it's more obvious. A lot of women, uh, especially young women, but it's not always young women <laughs> these days, right? They, they just feel not whole unless they have a man. And one of the reasons why they work so hard at their hair, or they care so much about their weight, or their presentation so much is because until they have a certain special man in their life, they feel this powerful neediness. And this is what they talk about. This is, this is the conversations they tell. This is the movies they like to watch. And these are the, and, and they have, like, have that, have their goal. If they were to go on a date or their friend goes on a date, they have to have that wrap up. <laughs> and they have to go into that big analysis, right? But come on, it's not just women. Um, I would never have admitted this when I was, uh, when I was single. Right? I mean, if you had, and in fact, this was, I was in such denial about this. If you had come up to me when I was like 21 or 25, I was like, heck no, I'm not so needy. But, but absolutely, when I was in college and when I was a young man, when I was single, 
It was a constant preoccupation on my mind. I absolutely want a girlfriend. Right? And I want to meet that special somebody. And when I was with the guys, of course, I was just, I'm, I'm cool, dude. <laughs> I'm cool. And I don't feel like, I act like I don't need anybody. But here is a very powerful need. And it really set the trajectory of how I look. It, I cared about, I mean, right down to showering. If there was a day that I wasn't going to meet any girls and I was just going to study all day or something like that when I was in college, you know, I didn't even shower that day. But if there was any day in which I was going to come into contact with girls, I would shower. And of course, you know, not that I, you know, I'm very good at grooming myself and all the other kind of stuff, but you do, right? And what is this? And, and in more subtle ways, too, you start becoming self-conscious about the way you talk or about the way you present yourself or the way you look. Are you cool enough? Are you, and especially if there's someone that you think is attractive, and that was very much so when I was single, right? Um, thankfully, not so much so now that I'm, I'm married. But you know what? It doesn't necessarily always go away. And there are those people. You know those, pe- there are those people, the, the girl who's got that string of boyfriends. The guy who always has to have a girlfriend. And if he doesn't, he's kind of out of whack. But it doesn't necessarily end even after people have married. Sometimes people's marriages don't work out well because they have this issue and because they want, they want something so badly from that other person and that other person isn't meeting their needs, so to speak. And there's a big problem in their relationship. And then, of course, sometimes people say, hey, you know, you're, you're not doing it for me. And so then this isn't just breaking up with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. It's, it's, uh, it's divorce. And then we'll try the next person and the next person. You know, anybody like this? The needy person. Now, let me say a little something about this. If you're a person, if you're one of these people, and you badly are longing for a mate or that special other person, let me say this to you. It's okay. Right? If anything, it just says you're okay. You're normal. So the first thing I want to say to you is you should not be ashamed about this. Because it, right there in the Bible, in Genesis, there was no sin in the world. The world was utterly pristine. But you know what God said about Adam? It's not good that he is alone. That there was actually a lack that God placed into Adam. And here it was. And so that God actually, he actually created woman. He actually created and invented this deep consolation for this need. Right? And so that's, that's one thing I want to say to you, but you can see that there's something deep and lacking in us because this good need so, so often in so many people, right? If, it, if you, that isn't the case with you, you're blessed. But in so many people, it is such a driving need, preoccupying and controlling. And when that's the case, you know it's not good. There's something not right about that. If it breaks you, right? And that's what Lewis is talking about here. Notice Lewis talking about this thing. This human love, even when it's at its best, there's danger there. I'll give you an example of how we do this, how it plays out and how we pick something like our career and how we we relate to the opposite sex. Let me give you one other example. This may not seem like it relates to this, but it is. And that is the person who says exactly what 1 Corinthians 12 says, I don't need anybody. The person who seems to be so with it doesn't need to depend on anybody. That person, I mean, that's the ideal in our culture, right? No. 
I'm thinking about a person who has no, who doesn't really have any real community. Right? And let me put it to you this way. I've got community. What do you mean, pastor? Really? Do you have not just friends, but deep friends? People who can speak into your life. People who can say, you know, the way you're handling this, I don't think that's good, <laughs> right? The way you're relating to your family, I mean, that's really, that's really dysfunctional there. And someone who could say hard things into your life. Someone who will love you. And the word that we use in Christian circles is accountability, right? Accountability. Just someone who will love you deeply that you, you willingly will say, you, will, you can speak to me this way. If you don't have anybody in your life who's a, who's a good enough friend to be that way, you don't have community, right? You don't have community. Because community is not just going down to the bar and hanging out with your buds and just talking about sports, which is just a, a whole grand of nothing, and then just having fun or going out with your friends, and then you have a nice casual conversation, and it fills a certain kind of loneliness for a short period of time, and then you go on. There's a lot of people in our culture who are floating through life, and they don't have community. They don't have deep friends. They have a lot of acquaintances that they call their friends. There's a lot of people today that that they don't, they don't know the difference between an acquaintance and a friend, a real deep friend, right? And yet, all these people that are acquaintances, they call them their friends and they think it's their community, but you don't really, you're lacking community. And you're floating through your life and you're keeping people at bay. And you are the person who is an eye that says, I don't need the foot. I don't, the hand that says, I don't need. I don't need, I don't need, right? And it's a self-sufficiency. And deep down, there are people like this, and if they would admit to themselves, they are lonely. And their loneliness flows actually out of their self-sufficiency. Their unwillingness to admit this and then go and engage in relationships and allow themselves, allow themselves to say they're in need. And actually, and actually, you know, between the needy person and the self-sufficient lonely person, you know what the Bible would say? is the more healthy person, is the needy person, actually. Right? And if that's the case, man, we are a really dysfunctional society because all of us are actually trying to go toward this direction. So many of us are trying to go toward this direction. And it's so much more the norm in our culture to, for lots of lonely, self-sufficient souls to not have community right, than the people who are actually deep down needy. Because at the, at, honestly, the people who seem to be kind of overflowing with their emotional needs, we may, sometimes we may look down upon them or we may pity them, but the fact is, if you actually are honest with yourself, you have those emotional needs. Now let me share with you another quote from Lewis. This is also from Four Loves. And Frank actually gave us a quote, but I would like to give this a little fuller. This is the way he puts it. For all those people... And I think with just so many of us trying to live this self-sufficiency, this is something that I think that we should hear. There is no safe investment. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. Isn't that true? If you, love, if you really love someone, it could hurt. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact so you'll be safe, you'll be safe from anyone ever hurting it, anyone ever breaking your heart, you must give your heart to no one. Not even a pet. 
not even an animal. Wrap your heart up carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries and avoid all entanglements, or as the way we'd like to put it, avoid all commitments. Lock your heart up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, and airless, your heart will change. It will be broken. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable. It will become impenetrable and even irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy or to a broken heart, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. Listen. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love, from all the potential hurts of love, is... You know where it is? Hell. I believe that the most lawless and inordinate loves are less contrary to God's will than a self-invited and self-protected lovelessness. We shall draw near to God, not by trying to avoid the sufferings inherent in all loves, but by accepting them and offering them to Him, throwing away all defensive armor. And remarkable the way that he thinks about it. What is heaven? It is the world where everything is love through and through. And then outside of heaven, there is one place where you can be utterly safe from any of the dangers of love. You know where that is? It's hell. So if you're starting to construct your life where you'll be utterly safe from relationships and from needing other people, because isn't that why we start to protect ourselves and we want to say we don't need other people because we're afraid that they'll let us down. We're afraid that people will look at us and go, oh, you're, you're so needy. You're so, you're so, uh, you're, you need to be so filled and you're, you, you're, you're so uh, empty. Right? And we don't want people to look down on us or we don't want them to let us down. But if we're going to keep ourselves safe from all this, Lewis is saying you are preparing yourself to live in hell. Because that is exactly what hell is. It is the place where you are utterly safe from love itself. Now look. How am I going to get past this? The only way to really get past this is there has to be something deeper, a, a, a freedom, a path beyond this pitfall or this pitfall. The needy, you know, pitfall where we are overly trying to suck the life out of other people because they got to fill us and we got to use. And, in that, in the, and, and it's an odd way. It's a kind of selfishness, actually, where you're constantly doing something to other people because you've got to get something out of them. Or to just wall yourself off. Right? The only way to get at this is really to see something in Christ. Now look, um, you know, my, my favorite preacher, Tim Kelly, he has this, he, he, he has this, uh, well, there's, there's a sermon where he says that we have an infinite need for affirmation. I've said that to you before. Isn't that incredible? You need somebody come into you and affirm who you are, and that need is infinite. I mean, it is absolutely endless. Isn't that crazy? And you know why that's true? Because inside of who we are, there's a profound vacuum. You know that, don't you? There's an emptiness, a hole. And that hole 
There's no bottom to that hole. You know why? Because the only person who can fill it, you were actually made to be a being that an infinite being comes to fill that hole, and that's God. Only God, who is absolutely infinite, can come and fill that gap. Because so if your heart is like a cup, do you realize it's a cup that has a bottomless hole? Isn't that crazy? And the only thing that could fill that cup is love. And so when we say we are needy, oh yeah, we are needy. It's just that some of us are just better at admitting it. And actually Lewis says those people are more healthy. They're actually at least longing and clamoring and they know that they were built for heaven because they know that the only place that's going to be filled is love because that's what heaven is. Right? But the people who are going the other way, they're the ones who are going the wrong way. And the only way you can have this balance where it can, you can have this free way that you can love people and you can truly let them love you, right? you can let them love you and give yourself to them not to be in the right entanglements, as Lewis puts it, to give yourselves freely and gladly to entanglements and commitments, is if your cup has a security, has a fill enough so that you're not grasping after people or avoiding them. And the only way that happens is if he who is God, the infinite person that your whole, that that infinite space gap was meant for, comes and dwells in that place. And you know that is? That's Jesus. Look, that thing that I just said to you is not just an idea. It's not just something that's in the pie in the sky. It happened. It happened here in history and it can happen to you. It happened in history on the cross. Because what the cross is, it represents the absolute lack. It represents hell. It represents the place where there is no love, when there is utter loneliness, and where there is utter disappointment and fear of other people. So he who is God, and we say this in our confessions, Jesus, very God of very God, he literally crossed, literally crossed all of the cosmos to come into this little world to live and walk among us and die on that cross and stand there when he is on that cross. He's coming there not just to save people, right, in the general, but he can come and be there in your lack, in that infinite lack. That is what the cross represents. I will be there for you. I will hurt with you. I will taste every emptiness with you and loneliness with you. And I'll fill you. This is it. It's pretty good, isn't it? It's good news. That's why we call it good news. And you need this. Brothers and sisters, you need this. You need this not only to become a Christian and go to heaven, you need this so that you can start tasting the stuff of heaven here. Right? You can start experiencing Christ here. You can have Christ in you here. And you need this. You know, you, you need this not just from me, your preacher on Sunday morning. You need this not only here at church. You know you need it on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. <laughs> you need it. And so I, I would suggest to you, go get some songs, put them in your iPod, listen to them, and let Jesus 
be there for you and hear this again and again. So your eyes and your heart and your life began to see Him and move toward Him. And He would begin to be this and fill this deep gap in you and give you the security. And you could gladly, and in a healthy, balanced way, begin to move toward people in relationships and connect to them and commit to them and give yourselves to them. Even when they hurt you, even when they let you down, right? it won't burn you out and it won't make you disconnect. Instead, when you go back to Christ and He recharges you and He fills you, only then can we have this free freedom to have this third and more balanced path. Jesus, who He Himself is the infinite affirmation and infinite love. Let's pray. Thanksgiving, Lord, and uh, 